0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Good morning, everyone. Let's
1: kind of gather around and we'll get started. Lots of goodies left over from the ladies' event on Saturdays. That's good. I noticed they broke a light up here. Y'all must take quite a, quite yeah. a uh, exciting time. <laughs> that was not our call. Oh, oh. <laughs> That's good. Well, good to see you. We're obviously we're together again for this day. Uh, Jeff is back. He got back late Friday night, and he connected with me and said, "Could we do the one class one more time?" He said, "I'm." hired and got a to do on Saturday to kind of re-enter so I said sure we'll do that again so it's good to, I'm glad to have the, the group together today so for the record this is uh, October 22nd and this is lesson 8 of the, our study of the book of Ecclesiastes let's pray and then we'll, we'll get started <clears throat> our Father we thank you now for uh, That's a gathering together. It's always, it's always your kindness and grace that we can be together, and we thank you for this day, the Lord's day, as we gather and uh, seek to turn our hearts freshly toward you and to to drink from uh, the fountain of your goodness and your kindness to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I pray today as we look into your word that you would. Uh, display before us the beauty of Christ and His great salvation. We may know His love in a new new way, and uh, therefore we may love Him and love one another. Thank you for each person that's here today. I pray you would encourage us and exhort us as we need. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I read through the chapter. I think it's probably the shortest chapter in the in the book, and uh, it kind of seemed like well he's just repeating some things and kind of uh, having a summary. But I didn't worry about it because I knew that my friend David Gibson would have something good to say about chapter six. But he didn't. He skipped it. <laughs> Teresa's going to find out why. Is that right, Teresa? <laughs> I mean, it's not there. He goes from chapter five to chapter seven. So it's really—I don't know, David. I want—or Dr. Gibson, I should say—I wanted to call him up and say, "Hey, you—you know, you've left me." <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? Well, um, he does do some. He does do chapter seven. I, I guess. Well, he, I know he does seven because I read that one. I, I don't know if he—and then there's another 40 pages. I'm assuming he does eight through 12 too. But we'll, we'll see. No, but good 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 book always has a lot to say it's not a technical commentary Uh, oh hey Jeff we're we're glad to see you it's not a technical commentary but he has some good insights and good it's more than a devotional but good good application so I still recommend that to you so uh, I did study the chapter and I don't have a lot to say to you about it. you can see that in the notes there's not not much hopefully everybody can see the, see a copy of the notes Um, So the point is that, as Ian Proven says, uh, we're not dealing here with another grievous evil, but merely exploring further the reality already presented, an evil or bad situation that multiplies, lies heavy on mankind uh, just as quickly as the riches multiply. So he, he, in in these first uh, six verses, he just kind of expands what he's already said and takes it a little bit to a new new level. So let me read verses 1 through 6 and we'll just comment on it just briefly. So Ecclesiastes 6, 1 through 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil if man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial i say that a stillborn child is better off than he for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness and in darkness its name is covered moreover it is not it is not seeing the the sun or known anything yet, it finds rest rather than he. So there he's comparing the, the rich man with uh, with the un, with the stillborn child. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, excuse me, yet enjoy no good, uh, do not all go to the same place. So you hear the same kind of of uh, insights that we've seen already through chapters one through one through five. Um, but he kind of presses his point home in a, um, by painting a picture of absurd hyperbole of this grievous evil, and that is having everything you want. God gives you everything you want, but he doesn't give you the, uh, the pleasure of enjoying it. And so he, he said, even if you had a 100 children and live 2,000 years, that would, that would still not provide for you what you need to enjoy, uh, to enjoy the things that God has given to you if you don't see them as God's good uh, good things. Um, as I made a note here, in fact, a long life would accentuate the sadness of his discontent, particularly if he's alienated his family, those hundred children, and his friends by his pursuit of wealth uh, and notice the interesting thing in verse um, where is that, the end of verse 3 and he, and he also has no burial so that's an interesting thought um, and maybe, maybe he was so alone that there was nobody to bury him you, know, you hear those kinds of stories sometimes they're really sad but I noticed um, one scholar says a miserable life comes to an end in a bad death. He departs unnoticed and unlamented, Because uh, he's building up now to, to talk about how death can be instructed to us. And he's beginning to do that now. I remember uh, 30, oh, 33 years ago, I was a chaplain at a business in Waco, Texas. It was a company that worked on big diesel trucks. And I got to know the janitor there. I guess you'd say it would be on the bottom rung of the hierarchy there. And his father died on like a Saturday, and um, and I called the the company Sunday morning to find out when his funeral was going to be. And they said it's a graveside. It's this morning at ten o'clock. So Waco's not very big. So I, I got in my car and drove quickly to the to the cemetery and. Um, and I found the graveside, and as I drove in, another car pulled in behind me, and it was the owner and the and his son, I think, and their and their uh, their wives. So it was me and these four people, and we, we you know we found the tent and at the graveside, and we walked to the to the uh, to the graveside, and there were three people there. There was. Uh, these were the three people I assumed I knew the janitor because I knew him I, so that was the son of the deceased there was the minister and then the, the uh, funeral director so I went up to the minister and I said I, I'm the chaplain of the company, I just want you to know I'm here to, to support you and, and he said here you do this and he handed me a, a paper sack of, he had written some notes, he said I'm not the minister I'm, uh, I'm the brother-in-law and I have a few thoughts here, but if you're a minister, you should do this. And I said, no, no, I'm not here to take over. I, he said, no, no, you need to do this. I, I'm not. So I walked back to my car and got my Bible, and in about three minutes, you know, planned the service as I was walking back. So I didn't really have a whole lot to say, but was able to bring a gospel meeting, a gospel presentation. The four people from the company were all believers. So, so there were those four, the funeral director, the son, and the brother-in-law were there. So I don't even remember what I said. I, I'm, a, I'm hoping I had a gospel message and some kind of comfort for for who was there. And um, and then we left. And I I still remember um, this is 33 years now. I still remember walking back to my car with these with these four people. Um, and I looked back and there was that tent. And you could see the funeral director. He was kind of you know, folding up things and, and finishing up his work. And then those two men, uh, the son and the brother-in-law. And uh, I thought, uh, well, that is a lonely, sad picture to see that. In fact, I asked them, why did they have the funeral, the graveside, so soon he just died 36 hours earlier? They said, because there was no one that would come. Well, I'm not saying that man was like this a rich man that pursued wealth in the wrong way, but uh, he's uh, Solomon says he will have a lonely, a lonely funeral. No one, uh, he will die unnoticed and unlamented. Well, then um, he does what he's done before. He he compares the situation to a stillborn child. And I'll just read what I've written there, and then because I want to get to to another verse. A stillborn child is better off. He never sees the sun or anything. His life has no meaning. That's that devil, that word um, for vanity or or, uh, breath or uh, temporary. And no enduring name. The foolish wealthy man has the same experience, but is so-called alive. But not seeing the good in God's gifts. He lives in darkness. Even if his life lasts two thousand years, it will end in death. So we've heard these things. Uh, we've heard these things before, and I just wanted to, to read them to you. But now I'd like to, to go to verses uh, seven through nine. And and I just want to point out verse nine. Well, let me read let me read the verses, and then you know, I'll go to verse nine. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Notice this theme. He's not content, he's not satisfied with what God has provided. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? And then verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So notice the, uh, the little bit of interpretation I got from some of my Hebrew scholar friends on your notes page. Better is the sight of the eyes, that is, seeing the good, seeing the good that that God has provided, than the wandering or the roving of the appetite, the desire of the soul. This also is vanity and striving after wind. So you that were with us when we started this study, well, two months ago now, I guess, um... You may remember, or you, you may not, that uh, there's interesting numerology going on in the in the uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, and several scholars recognize it. And here's the here's the point: there's 222 verses in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and they match up pretty well with the, with the English. There's 222 Hebrew poetic verses. Um, and they match up pretty well with the English verses. So 222, half of that is 111, which would be the middle of the book. And Ecclesiastes 6, 9 is verse 111. So and we did all kinds of fancy stuff on the board about how they got to that 111. And it gets back into Hebrew numbers. You may know Hebrew letters have a, a number assigned to them. And this this word that is um, uh, the predominant word, uh, the word for vanity, is the word hevel. And y'all following all this and loving what I'm doing here? Okay. <laughs> but let me just get it said, then I'll get to the important part. The, uh, so the word hevel which is the word vanity, the number, uh, the, the total number of the letters is 37, okay? So you math, is, what is three times 37? 111. And uh, you do three because when, the, when you like this, Sherlene?
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the point is, there's, there's more to this than just uh, coincidence and, and a, a scholar like uh, Bruce Waltke says, Um, Ecclesiastes contains exactly 222 poetic verses and the verse numbering we find in the book today is in basic agreement with these poetic lines. The book divides evenly into two halves of 111 verses. There are 111 verses from Ecclesiastes 1.1 to 6.9, another 111 from Ecclesiastes 6.10 to 12.14. The structure is neither accidental nor artificial. It reflects the work of a beautiful mind the number 111 is not insignificant. So, I, wanna, I, I think there's something going on here with Ecclesiastes 6-9, that, because the, the other thing I think we're gonna see is where this completes the first half of the book, and things change some in the second half. I haven't studied it enough to know what the change is, but I know there's, the scholars say that, that the second half of the book is different. But, think about it with me for just a moment, If 6-9 is the summary of the first half of the book, the message of of the preacher, then what does this say to us? So, again, I read the interpretive uh, translation. Better is the sight of the eyes, that is, seeing the good, which is a common way he talks about that, than the wandering or the roving of the appetite, that is, the desire or the soul. So, our writer, uh, we believe, is Solomon. He's asked this question in Ecclesiastes one so three. Just go back there, and you'll see the question. Ecclesiastes one three. So this is this is his big question. The uh, the scholars call it his programmatic question. This is what programs the rest of the book. This question of what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun that's the question and he spent five chapters now answering that. what does a man gain with all that he does under the sun his answers in chapters 1 through the first half of chapter 6 is uh, he doesn't gain anything in this life because he's going to die he's going to leave it all here and um, he'll leave it all behind but he can't have joy in the process if he will accept his creaturely limitations, live under the sovereign rule of God, and see his goodness in what he provides. He can receive the gift of God to enjoy his gifts of eating and drinking. The result will be contentment and satisfaction with what God provides. So I think that's the I think that's the lesson. <clears throat> in verse 9 is, is the summary giving what Solomon says that he's learned in presenting to us in the first half of the book but this is the, this is the kicker here but if he's looking if he's not seeing the good, that is seeing the good that God's provided and being content with it then his desires will wander and they'll go looking for another way to find their contentment isn't that the first sin in the garden of in the garden of Eden? Remember, um, what did the, what did the snake do? He got Eve to question God's goodness. And boy, once he got that done, like John Owen said, he, he says my work is done now. And if I can get her to question, or get any of us to question God's goodness to have these, as the Puritans said, mean thoughts of God. And so, when he when he did that, <clears throat> persuading Eve that God was not good, then therefore she must satisfy her own desires and longings in her own way, apart from God. And as we have, as we know in ourselves, and as we look at humanity, uh, everything went downhill from there. Um, I've been wanting to for us to read First Timothy six for several weeks. And I think now's the time to do it. So would you go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it seems to me that when you read these verses in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you will think that Paul has been meditating on the book of Ecclesiastes. Notice the Notice the common themes in Paul's words to Timothy with Ecclesiastes. uh, Contentment, desire, love of money, self-destructive behavior, etc. So let's begin reading uh, 1 Timothy 6, uh, verse 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Well, that just sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then down to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides with us everything to enjoy. Well, that's Solomon. He richly provides everything for us to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I just wanted you to to see that uh, because I thought it's just such a good summary of the book of Ecclesiastes, at least the first first six chapters, and to to see um, this question, how can we see God clearly to perceive his goodness so that we'll be satisfied with him and his gifts? and and by being satisfied they will not go wandering, our desires will not go wandering for for other ways to have uh, have them met. And I would propose to you today that the clearest way to see God accurately and to see His goodness is through the lens of the Gospel. When we see God through the message of the Gospel we see all of His attributes clearly and we see His goodness demonstrated in the giving of His Son for our salvation. And when we see Him in all of His grace and love for us, we are satisfied in Him. Our souls are content, and they don't go wandering around to fulfill our desires in an unlawful way. Uh, Milton Vincent is an author that wrote this book called The Gospel Primer, and uh, I think many of you have this little book, and I've got a bunch of them here if you don't have this, and I'll tell you about this in just a moment. But he, he gives uh, 31 reasons why we should rehearse the gospel every day, why we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. He's not the first man to have that idea. I think Jerry Bridges was an earlier guy that did that. But I want to read uh, four or five sentences to you, and, and so listen Listen to what uh, Milton Vincent says in light of the verse that we just read, um, Ecclesiastes 6-9, that when our eyes see the good, we won't go looking to meet and have our needs met other ways. So listen to, to uh, Milton Vincent. The key to mortifying fleshly lust is to eliminate the emptiness within me and replace it with fullness. And I accomplish this by feasting on the gospel. Indeed, it is in the gospel that I experience a God who glorifies himself by filling me with his fullness. What happens to my appetites for sin when I am filled with the fullness of God in Christ? Jesus provides the answer. Quote, He who continually comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. Indeed, as I perpetually feast on Christ, and all of his blessings found in the gospel, I find that my hunger for sin diminishes and the lies of lust simply lose their appeal. So like that little person is not having their needs. Um, <laughs> or at least their desires probably his needs are fine. So, um, I would encourage you, admonish you to, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Because when we... When we look at life through the gospel, uh, it corrects our misperceptions. And when we look at God through the gospel, we see His love and care for us. And then we'll love Him, and we won't go looking for other other uh, ways to be satisfied. So this this little booklet is the middle eight or ten pages of this book. And uh, this is what I do. I keep this by my by my. Uh, Chair, where I have my morning quiet time. If in my normal reading of the you know the Bible that I'm reading through from my Bible reading plan, if there's a, if there's not a, a gospel hook, you know, a gospel a piece of the gospel that I can meditate on and drink from the gospel, then I pull out uh, this little booklet and and uh, I just read a, a page of it and meditate on one of those verses about. Uh, about the gospel of what Christ has provided for us in uh, in His love for us. So that's my uh, my admonition to you. And I've got a bunch of these. I think I've got forty of them. So if you don't have one, I'd like for you to come uh, come get uh, come get one of those. The whole book is good, but if, if all you but that's a good place uh, good place to start. Okay. Any how about any thoughts or input on that? okay well let's go to chapter 7 oh I didn't, I didn't do uh, the last verses I should just we should read those and then I'll give you my little conclusion there so chapter 6 verses 10 through 12 whatever has come to be already has been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man, while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For he can tell man what for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So you can just see my notes there. Uh, a couple of quotes from people. Reality is something that must be accepted rather than debated. Man cannot dispute with God as Job learned in Job chapters 38-40. And then uh, a quote from Isaiah 45-9, it is absurd for the clay to offer advice or complaint to the potter. Remember that passage? Uh, the clay says, don't you need a handle right there? <laughs> you know, how absurd is that? It, it, it is, and that's the same way it's absurd for us to question God or to speak against Him. And then it's always good to end with a provocative quote from Douglas Wilson. A man's arms are too short to box with God. Apart from the gift of God, that is enjoyment, the more a man struggles with his condition, the more the vanity increases. Okay, well let's go to, to uh, chapter 7 now. It is a, an amazing chapter, the first uh, verses particularly. Uh, we're going to look look at verses 1 through 6 that will take the rest of our time uh, today and I'm going to read it but notice I didn't count them I think there's 5 or 6 better thans so Solomon is, is making a, a value judgment of one thing that's better than another so I'm going to read a uh, the, the quote from uh, David Gibson he's back now during chapter 7 the, the preacher offers us two options in this life that eludes our control and frustrates our expectations. The two options are escapism or wisdom. To enjoy life by recognizing our limitations under the goodness of God. The reality of death lies at the heart of Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 6. Previously, the the preacher used death to, to relativize wisdom. That is, he used death to show that wisdom has its limits. You're not, wisdom's not going to get you past uh, past your own funeral. So, in the first five chapters, he's used death as a as a way to to put kind of put wisdom in its place. But here, he uses death as an incentive to embrace wisdom. So he's going to. So what he's going to do in these six verses is he is going to direct us to death. <coughs> In order to teach us about life. So let's uh, let's read it and then we'll we'll get in get into it. So notice all the better than here. And you know you hear all the questions too that we want to ask and answer or try to answer. So Hebrews excuse me, Ecclesiastes seven, verses one through six. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of heart the face is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Well, let's go back to verse 1. A good name is better than precious ornament. So there's a good statement. How is a good name better than precious ornament? This is the easiest question we'll have to ask in this, in this series here.
0: It's lasting.
1: It's lasting okay a good name is lasting good. You can't buy a good reputation. Okay you can't buy it. Good. Precious ointment smells good doesn't it? There's nothing wrong with precious ointment. that's not the point there's that a good name is better a good name is not uh, it's, it can be timeless if we maintain our good reputation it's not perishable like silver or gold or expensive uh, perfume ok that was the easy one look at Ecclesiastes 7 1b and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to insert the better than and the day of death is better than the day of birth the day of death is better than the day of birth. I, I, I visit hospitals a lot. and I was over at uh, Scott and White Hospital and whenever a baby is born, a little uh, nursery rhyme chime plays through the PA system. It's really sweet. And everybody goes, oh, everybody's happy because everybody's happy. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a time of joy when there's, you know, when there's a birth. So what's going on here for Solomon to say? Well, there's nothing wrong with the day of birth, but the day of death is better. Why is that? Well,
0: whatever happened to you after your death is more important than what's yet to happen when you're born.
1: Okay, so I says, so so you're looking at death that ushers us into eternity. Yeah. Okay, very good. So we look back at, from the from the New Testament, with the with the understanding of the New Covenant, we look at death and realize that it ushers us into eternity, and so it, it's a more important day than the day before. Thank you. Good. Uh, James? Maybe because you don't have to look at the evil that's going on on the earth anymore. Okay. You know, so maybe that's part of it. Okay. But a little baby has a lot to look at. do You'll hear that. Maybe because after death, there's not you don't have to endure all the evil that's been taken uh, up trees
0: i was thinking of it more as someone if you you know rather going to someone's funeral it's a sobering effect on our lives it gives us a reality that oh maybe i need to change some things in my life for the rest of my life Mm -hmm.
1: yeah so going to a funeral uh, clarifies the realities of life where going to to a bassinet in a in your home or where you are at the hospital, uh, all you see there is the you see the potential of uh, of a new life, but uh, you don't see the you don't automatically have the clarity of the issues of life. It's like your race is won. Okay. At the, at the end of a race, you don't necessarily love
0: running the race, but at the end when you get reward and uh, all
1: of that, you're you're happy about it, so it's kind of like that. Good, so, Joanne says, in in Christ, of course, Mm -hmm. the race is is won at our our death. Um, I don't remember, I think David Gibson said this, a coffin is a better teacher than a newborn bassinet. A coffin is a better teacher than than a newborn bassinet. Death brings the realities of life into focus. When we think about our own funeral, we see clearly what is vital and important for today. So, I, I, th- I think going to funerals is a good thing. You know, you can't always go to the birth of a baby, but usually you don't have to have a ticket to get into a funeral. You can, you know, unless it's a private family gravesite or something, you can go to, to funerals. And, and by going there, uh, we can be instructed uh, sometimes we can be instructed by the by the life and the death of other people by what you hear about them at funerals uh, David uh, Gibson kind of points this out in a humorous way um, and I've been to funerals like this and probably you have too and here's the kind of things that were read on the uh, obituary she loved her pets and was president of the knitting circle at the senior center and she holds the longest winning streak in bingo. (laughs) Have you heard that kind of? It's just amazing the kind of things you can hear in uh, in obituaries. So that's a negative example, isn't it? Well, I hope hope people have something more to say to me, say about me at my funeral. And I thought, uh, I've been to three funerals in the last uh, six weeks or so. For two months, um, and uh, I thought about Pat Dye's funeral. Jeremy, um, we didn't go to it, but we we watched it online. And uh, I'm a, I'm not so I printed her obituary just uh, last night. Just a couple of things. Uh, she she used her teaching gifts as a Sunday school teacher and a WANA to leader. Um, she used her musical abilities on the piano and organ to encourage others in the worship. She loved hymns, and over the course of her lifetime wrote the words to more than 1,700 hymns so mm-hmm. and psalms, many of which she shared in daily encouragement. Her gift as a writer reached beyond her songwriting. She's a published author, wrote a four-year Bible curriculum for homeschool students, and on, and on and on and on and on and on. I read about, uh, about Pat Dice and... No wonder Jeremy's turned out so good, uh, at least so far. Uh, well, sorry. But, but look at what you can learn from a lady like that. Now, you could be discouraged. I have never written uh, maybe one point, because she's written 1700. But that encourages, doesn't it, when we look at, at, at a life well lived. Um, we're encouraged by that, and we're, and we're challenged by it.
0: Yeah, yeah, no. I think the hardest thing I ever had to do in my whole life was given give the eulogy for my dad at his funeral mm-hmm. when he was not a believer. Mm-hmm. He accomplished a lot, he had a lot of tremendous abilities, he'd been a good father and husband in many ways. But all of those things sounded so hollow compared to the truth. <coughs> and very, very difficult. For me, it ultimately was simply a rare opportunity to give the gospel to my brother who normally has, does not want to be a captive audience to that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the way I approach it. But you just see how futile a life really is. All that comes, the main things that come out come to mind are the negative things about how the life was wasted. That's what really seems to come out. Mm-hmm and I, there, must be, there must be a healthier
1: way of looking at it than I seem to be encountering it, but it was very, very hard for me. Well, I think that's to Solomon's point. Death is instructive to us, isn't it, John? How, how did
0: he handle it? How did, if he was the one who prepared the eulogy, how did he
1: handle it? How did you, how'd you do with it, uh, John? You had to do it. I don't think I did very
0: well. There, were, there was hardly anybody at my dad's funeral, um, mostly because of his declining health over many years and living in an assisted living center. Mm-hmm. But when I tried to emphasize the positive for the first part of the message, I, I, I just feel like, yes, I listed these things and I could see the two or three business associates of my dad that were there. and knew how much ability he had and enjoyed his company and sense of humor and all those things see them nodding you know like yes that's right but i just felt like i was ticking off things that were meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm.
1: i think it's proper to honor the deceased in in every legitimate that way that we can as a work as a chap for businesses i've done a lot of funerals and most of them were for unbelievers because if they were believers out of church and a pastor, so I did a lot of funerals for unbelievers. And I, I didn't I wasn't very creative. I always had always told the people there's three things we want to do today. We want to honor the life of the deceased, we want to comfort the family, and we want to consider our own life and death. And that's the gospel, you know, way to bring the gospel in. So that's why it's a good reason to go to funerals. There's a lot of good reasons to go to funerals.
0: Well, I was gonna say that um, I think it's a very good uh, way of us being able to say the truth, mm-hmm. but use it as our, as um, uh, like we're sharing the good, good news. Mm-hmm. If those people are not, I mean, not everybody is a Christian or a believer. So it's a great opportunity to say, you know, whatever you need to say, the truth, yeah. and then use it as your witness.
1: Yeah, good. Yeah, funerals are a great place for, for gospel witness. So, Michael. Just to clarify, are, would you, to your understanding,
0: is his is reason behind saying that death is better than birth, that your understanding of that is that he's talking about it being more instructive than birth, because just that statement alone, it, it seems, I mean, just from the conversation, there have been so many things that have been, you know, prefaces to that or clarifications and that you can't just, you know, there's 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 more than just taking it at face value. There's a lot to unpack. But would you say the primary thing that he's, the standard for what which one is better is just the, the instruction that comes with that or the consideration? I
1: think so, particularly in the context of this this passage and and he's saying that that death I think is a better instructor to us so so um, so go forward to your death and be instructed by looking back at your life that's his point I think Um, so verse 2 explains verse 1 particularly the last part of verse 1 and the day of death is better than the day of birth so look at verse two. It it is better to go to the house of mourning. That is a place where people are sad because of a death. That could be a maybe in those days probably somebody's home or maybe a funeral home. So it's better to go to the to a place where people are mourning than to go to the house of feasting. That is a and there's nothing wrong to go to the house of feasting. Um, but this is the but the contrast is. Uh, mourning and sadness as contrasted to feasting and celebration. That is, if you have a choice, go to the house of mourning. So, um, so why is it better to go to the house of mourning to a funeral than to the house of celebration and feasting?
0: The second
1: half of the verse, okay, yeah, it's right there, isn't it? Trees. Um, for this is the end. There's two things. For this is the end of all mankind. Uh, when you go to a funeral, you can look ahead and know I'm going to have one of these one day. This is that everybody's going to uh, going to die. But look at the second one, and the living will lay it to heart. the The living will um, the living will will learn from. Death from the death and from the mourning that takes place. So what do we learn? How is it instructive to us?
0: Well, one thing it reminds us all that we're going to meet that fate and it's how we want to meet it. Um, because I hear people say, I have plenty of time. I'm just not there yet. Mm-hmm. I have plenty of time. And that reminds us that we don't know how much time we have. Mm-hmm. So we need to be alert and on point. Right. But a
1: lot of people do think they have a lot of time and we could still know good point good good point joanne so i would encourage us to to press into times of mourning now sometimes i think when we hear about a death we're hesitant to to go to their home or mm-hmm. why, why are we hesitant Because we don't know what to, (coughs) we don't know what to say, and that's that's really the least of our concerns. But to go and be be present, so to speak, and I mean we need to say something. But what we say is not so important. But as we go to be among mourning people, we are instructed by their by their mourning. I still remember um, uh, late August, like August 22nd or so last year. Uh, you may remember Dorota Palmer was in our home, dying of cancer, and it was a strange event. One morning, I was having my quiet time, and I was reading this. This was where my reading was right here in Ecclesiastes seven, and her the room where she was in bed was next to my office, where I was reading this verse. And while I was reading this, literally this passage, I heard her uh, moaning, you know, in her. She was in her last days of, of, uh, of life, and I'm not sure how I was instructed by that, but it, well, it was a, almost a surreal event for me to, to be instructed by her. She wasn't mourning, but she was, you know, she was uh, in pain and <coughs> and in distress. So I would encourage you to go, to be with people in times of mourning, and you think about that. Uh, I encourage you also to 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 uh, to experience other people's grief and to embrace your own grief because grief and mourning is the common experience of everyone. Not everyone may not can have a happy, joyous birth to <coughs> celebrate, but all of us have are going to have times of mourning and grief. So the more we can step into that mourning and grief the more we can have a common uh, experience to minister to other people well I think our time is up so we'll pick up uh, so keep reading uh, we'll probably try to do all of chapter 7 next time but keep reading these first 7 verses it really gets interesting there thank you